Welcome to the second episode of the SSAA Victoria podcast. Our plan is to use these podcasts to talk about the broad range of interests in shooting and hunting in Victoria. There are ongoing regulatory challenges in the fallout from the tragedy in Queensland last year and in WA last week. The team is watching all of that closely and engaging with government to ensure the best results for recreational shooters. There are concerns about deer control that we're engaging with Parks Victoria on. There's a lot happening in training, including the completion of the association's new dedicated training centre at Eagle Park, hopefully this year. We also have some major range upgrades happening at Springvale, which is exciting for the thousands of users down there. There's some great outreach happening. We recently ran a parliamentarian's range day at Eagle Park that's introduced dozens of MPs from across the political spectrum to just how fun and rewarding shooting is. The Women on Target events are also rolling out across regional Victoria. But you'd have to be living under a rock not to recognise that duck and quail hunting is the tip of the spear when it comes to attacks on shooting and hunting in Victoria at the moment. Two months ago, we recorded an in-depth podcast to allow members to get all of the information possible about the issues. And so much has happened since then, including entire hunting seasons, that we felt the need to come back into the studio today and go over the developments in depth. I'm Barry Howlett, and I'm the Communications Manager with SSAA Victoria. My job includes working on a number of things, including the Association's Advocacy Program. I'm joined today by Fadi Khalif, who's SSAA Victoria's RTO Manager, Daryl Snowden, our CPM and Training Development Coordinator, and David Laird, our Hunting Development Manager. Um, just go around the room, gentlemen, and quickly introduce yourselves if you want to start, Fatty. Yeah, my name is Fadi Khalif. I'm the RTO manager or the training manager for uh, the sporting shooters. SSAA Victoria is a registered training organisation, hence an RTO. My job or my role is to ensure compliance, uh, manage training, um, and oversee the delivery of all um, firearm training across the state. Uh, yeah, so David Laird, hunting development manager. Uh, I've obviously got overall responsibility for all hunting-related matters within the association, uh, along with uh, firearms and hunter education training. Um, obviously, we've got a really strong team in state office, and there's a fair bit of crossover within all of our roles. So uh, none of us are silos. We all work together on all of these issues, um, and it's a really good team, and we're really achieving some good results. Uh, on a personal note, I've been shooting and hunting for over 40 years now, starting to feel a bit old in, in some cases. But uh, yeah, my passion is uh, is deer hunting, but uh, also been a very keen duck hunter for a, a lot of years and have hunted uh, a lot of other species as well. And another bloke who knows a thing or two about duck hunting is Daryl. Hi, my name's Daryl Snowden. I'm a duck hunter. <laughs> yes, I'm the token duck hunter. Now, um, my role at SSAA is uh, Conservation Pest Management Coordinator, so I coordinate the conservation pest management programs um, both on ground and the training and qualification of our uh, registered hunters that participate in the program and I also work in training development so I work alongside Dave and Fatty in both developing training packages and programs and also delivering them. And some of the training you've been doing recently Daryl was running some wit test training um, at Eagle Park and at Springvale um, so you want to tell us just a bit about what you do with that training and, and what the benefit in that is for new hunters. Yeah, so there's been a gap in Melbourne for many years and was identified many years ago before I actually jumped over to working in the hunting industry and I'd started delivering them just at my local field and game club um, about 15 years ago and there was an opposite demand and just it's kept rolling along that journey and when we got the new wit test, um, while the footage and the test itself seemed to be a little bit easier, um, certainly with the changes to regulation around pass marks and scores you need to 
to get now it's become harder so there's that demand has now returned and there's many people trying to get in there so we developed a new package that we're delivering now through SSAA down at Springvale also at Eagle Park Springvale seems to be the hot spot um, where we just run people through um, what to expect so instead of trying to teach people how to pass a test we uh, <laughs> my mission is to try and teach people to identify waterfowl <laughs> And one of the beneficiaries of that uh, this year was Fatty here. Who's yeah, I did the course this year, and um, I really gained a lot from it. Um, look, from from a new hunter perspective, um, it's good sometimes to to read, to research, and to ask other people. You know, what's important, what to do, and what not to do. But it's true that you gain value from all these um, from this research and all that. But unless you you put your effort to to attend a well planned course and learn from an established hunter and tell you exactly what to look for, what not to look for, uh, because it all happened quickly when you're in the, in the field and you're hunting. You know, you've got, you have to think about safety, you have to think about um, distance, you have to think, you have to identify the bird, and you've got two seconds to do all of that. And look, the most important thing to learn, if you don't know how to identify a bird, don't take a shot. That's the main thing that you learn from that course. However, there's things that you look for and you learn from the trainer. And I learned a lot from Daryl this year. And it helped me a lot. And I went hunting and it was a good day. And you and you just scraped by when you did the wit test. You passed somehow. What, what, mark, what mark did you get? I got a full mark <laughs> with the help of... <laughs> but no, nah, it, it was good. It was good. Uh, but look, um, attending the course is one thing. But I encourage everyone to actually put some effort in actually going back and take a week or two to go through the theory and read and actually memorize things and take notes. And that's what I gained from it. Come on, Fatty, what's your new nickname around the office? Eh? Double A. Double A. Double A. I think uh, quite a few people actually from those courses managed to to get a double A pass, which I think is a real testament to to the training that Daryl puts into it. Um, He's a little bit modest. Um, Those who know him well might disagree with that, but uh, he doesn't tend to uh, blow his own trumpet. But, um, yeah, I attended those those courses to um, add a bit of a support and help out with a few bits and pieces in the background. And, yeah, really impressive. And the results just speak for themselves. The fact that uh, the vast majority of people got through and the vast majority of people did really well. Uh, when you compare that to uh, people just going and do the course um, through other channels through GMA, I think the failure rate is really, really high. So um, nah, it's a it's a really good course and we'd certainly recommend that people go and, and do it if you're getting into duck hunting and uh, give yourself that best start. Look, what it comes down to is my role is to convert deer hunters into duck hunters. We've got lots of deer hunters and we need more duck hunters. But look, it's really easy to become a, a deer hunter. You go buy a gun and you go pay your licence fee and off you go. To become a duck hunter is a little bit little bit harder it's not quite as easy as going deer hunting so there's a lot of technique involved but also there's a lot of testing involved you need to obviously pass the wit test and to do that there are there is this school of thought you can just sort of walk in and do the test and you'll get yourself a duck license but <laughs> the reality is uh the fail rate of people that walk in off the street is very high it's up to around 80 percent of people fail uh, without some sort of training or education so look it's really important to convert deer hunters into duck hunters and um another one we we deal for we dealt for a few fallacies Last time we did this podcast, um, I, I see accusations that oh, we should be doing this training for free and we're making all this money out of doing wit training. We're making all this money out of tying up our staff out of hours and tying up our facilities out of hours for... How much was it? were you charging for the wit test, Daryl? How much did the association charge? Off the top of my head, $80, $80 For two nights of training? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not making a fortune out of uh, our training. Believe no, me, none of us are retiring. No, 
Um, so we moved on from the wit test and we did the four of us. Spent a week in lovely Kerrang early in April. Um, did a road trip. I think all up, I calculated when we got back, we covered an area of about six and a half thousand square kilometres. Uh, visited hunters camps at 22 public wetlands. What, was, what do you think the importance of doing that sort of outreach was, David? Oh, look, it's it's really important on a number of levels. Um, obviously, it's important for us as an organisation to, to fly the flag, uh, let our members and other hunters know that we're out there actually supporting them uh, on the ground. Um, it's important too that we uh, deal with the regulators who are on the ground and speak to them about any potential issues that, uh, that they may be concerned about. Uh, and also do any media that needs to be done. So uh, we're, we're certainly there for there. And also to keep an eye on activist behaviour um, and hold them to account for some of the claims that they make. Um, so this year was was particularly important. Look, it's really important that hunters do the right thing all the time, and the, we know the vast majority of them do. Uh, but we th- felt this year in particular, with the inquiry going on and, and the scrutiny of duck hunting and the, the threats we're really facing, that it was really important we went out and spoke to hunters and as many hunters as we could directly. And we spoke to literally hundreds of hunters um, across that that whole area, and we covered a whole heap of, of country to do that, which was really encouraging. And uh, they've, they've done really well. Yeah, anyone else? I suppose... Um in all of those trips, you have highlights. Um, there, there are a number of any of those trips away with, with a group of, of the boys. I suppose you're going to have you have a bit of fun and you let your hair down. And you have a few highlights, but certainly a highlight for me was a, an old. Fanny and I were arguing over his accent, but we we settled on regional German. Yeah, it was German, yeah, or, it was Austri- Austri- German or Austrian. Yeah, um, old bloke had been hunting since the mid '60s, I think. Yeah. Um, had an old homemade punt, camped all alone. You were right here, mate, and he's, yeah, yeah, well, my friend used to come with me, but they're all dead now, but I come up and spend the entire season. So he was sitting on a public wetland. He had his caravan set up and he had his sights set on getting himself two birds a day, every day for the duck season because he has one for lunch and one for dinner. Um, and that was just a real highlight for me, meeting someone who, certainly in the twilight of his hunting life and, and the twilight of his life, um, all his friends are gone. Everyone he used to do it with is gone, but this thing means so much to him that he keeps coming up and, and putting the whole season it's into it. It's a beautiful story. It was lovely. Yeah. And that's that's the sort of stories we need to get out to the decision makers on this. I mean, it's very uh, all very well for them to sit in an office in Melbourne and, and be deciding basically people's fates and, and futures on these sort of things. But the people on the ground who are doing this, this is their way of life. It's really, really important to them. Um, and that's really what we're fighting for, to, to maintain that cultural heritage and their rights to go and continue to do that. Uh, the other one for me that was a real highlight uh, was the uh, three generations of, of hunters in the one camp. Uh, there was a, a granddaughter. Uh, she was 14 and this was her first duck season and uh, she was really keen and excited to do it. She'd gone and done her training and was ready to go. Uh, her father was there and her grandfather, so it was three generations. And uh, they camped there. They used to go up the the uh, grandfather and the and the father on a regular basis. And now the granddaughter was coming and joining them. And that's the sort of things that we're trying to get through to this parliamentary inquiry and get people to understand. It's not the stereotypes that the aunties portray, um, or the the rednecks and those sort of things. Um, these are the people who are really involved in duck hunting, and these are the people we wanted to reach out to, speak to, and um, and be able to tell their stories and let them know that we're actually there supporting them. Look, a shooting community is a friendly community. That's what I've noticed throughout the years. Um, everybody we met knew we met over there knew what they had to do, 
knew the regulations, knew what to, what is expected from them, um, and they were very friendly. Um, they were they were families, they were friends, mates, people alone that they lost their friends along the way, and but they're still going on with this one. It was it was a a good experience for me and uh, to meet all these people. Some some were very friendly actually. It was, uh, it was a camp, a camp <laughs> really full enjoyable. Of- Camp full of a, a couple of generations of Greek blokes who were sharing produce with you at ten o'clock in the morning. Ten o'clock in the morning, oh, yeah, it was. Uh, well, yeah, just to mention there was no uh, that was before the opening, so there was no firearms involved. Uh, they were but very hospitable. Just to make sure that's clear. Um, but yeah, we had some grappa and um, uh, we had to move on. They they want us to stay there for a while, but yeah, it was it was getting, it was getting dangerous. <laughs> you know, yeah. When you were talking about highlights, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that. But look, after you know three days of visiting hunters, um, there were certainly some highlights. A highlight for me was you know I've been doing this for a long while, and Barry's been with be my by my side over the years back you know 2015, 16, 17, 18, back when in my previous role in another association. And look, it's always good to go into camps. And look, there's been a lot of debate over the years. There's some people that I've had public interactions and debate with, both on Facebook and uh, a couple of duck fever nights, et cetera, where I've had quite heated debates. Well, those individuals still, you get to their duck camp on the day before opening, they invite you in and, hey, what sort of beer do you want? Handshakes and, you know, catch your hands, sort of thing. So just the the camaraderie of duck hunters, you know, we're all duck hunters and we all have different opinions and most of us like to... Uh, Put those opinions out there. I certainly don't. I'm not shy. I don't hold back. And had some quite heated debates over the years. But when you come to those guys' camps, you're still invited into their camps. There's a handshake and a beer waiting for you on the afternoon. It's you know, the camaraderie between duck hunting is, is fantastic. It's an activity that provokes passion. But it, it was a great reminder that the things that unite us are, are far stronger than the things that divide us. Yeah, that's right. We've got more in common than we have than not. But the highlight must be. The final night uh, on on a duck opening day, I think it was the Wednesday night, the hot wing challenge at the Krang Hotel. There is one individual here that took on the challenge. Um, so if listeners, I don't think are, you got to mention that one today. If, if, yeah. if listeners are curious, they can go to the Exchange Hotel and Krang Facebook page. Yeah, and, it's on there. Um, but get educated about the hot wing so, challenge. While it was all all serious uh, up until the end, uh, we did have, let our hair down a little bit at the end and did the hot wing. Well, well we didn't do the hot wings challenge. No, we didn't do that. <laughs> we were smart enough not to do the hot wings Fatty challenge. Did. Fatty did the hot wings challenge and did but, it very well. Yeah, did it very well. But you can see from all of these that how much how much uh, money the the whole sport generates for small businesses, for for pubs, for restaurants, and there for hotels, motels. Uh, I mean, all these people should should submit uh, something to the government because this is important not only for hunters and families and friends, for everyone else involved in the whole process. All that time we spent in pubs was purely <laughs> purely purely to help regional <laughs> economies. I thought it was research. <laughs> Um, so we, we moved on to opening day and we were actually staying in Kerrang um, and the opening circus upped roots and moved um, the night before. So we had a very early morning, um, opening morning, um, left Kerrang and headed over towards Donald to where all the opening morning shenanigans were going to be. Uh, the day started with um, something that had been planned with the Outdoor Recreation Advocacy Group, so led by the Electrical Trades Union, which was full page advertisements supporting duck hunting in the major Melbourne and a number of major regional newspapers. So quite an expensive campaign, quite significant, and something that resonated really well when we were out on the duck swamps, certainly on opening day, and a number of hunters saying, you know, why don't we have a protest? Why don't we do this? Why don't we take some sort of really decisive public action? Uh, To be able to show them those newspapers and say, how's this for public action? It resonated really, really well with hunters. And it was great to see that support um, from all those groups and in particular the unions. Um, It just 
does show because the anti sort of make out that uh, that duck hunters are a tiny minority of the of the population, which they are, but they do have a lot of support and there's a lot of common issues uh, with outdoor recreational activities uh, and restrictions on those activities. And I think people have sort of realised that uh, whilst they mightn't be duck hunters themselves, that what happens to duck hunting is going to have those potential flow-on impacts into what they do. So it was really good to see that recognition and, and that support across the board. And we got to opening morning, we went to Lake Bullock because there was going to be this massive media circus and this concentration of hunters and protesters and absolute flashpoint. And um, we saw Wildlife Victoria, who are a, what are they? They're a non-for-profit group that cosplay as a government agency I suppose um yeah, if you have a look at their vehicles and the sort of the coloring and the way they've set up um yeah you, you could mistake them for uh, for an official type vehicle so so they had a massive rescue tent set up for all these rescues they're going to do and then we had the white overalled protesters with their flags and ballistic goggles on there was only one thing missing from Lake Bulloke on opening morning yep there was very few hunters there I think we heard a couple on the on the far side of the lake um it was very quiet Word had got around that that's where the, the protesters were going to be and where the circus was. And as we've said numerous times in the past, hunters don't want that confrontation. They want to go, be able to go out. They want to be able to go hunting, enjoy their cultural traditions, spend time with their friends and family. They don't want to engage in sort of all that conflict. So uh, they found other areas to go to. But it was really interesting to see the, the absolute disappointment on the faces of, of the activists there, uh, that, that nothing was going on. Now, I would have thought they would have been wrapped, um, that they didn't have anything to do and they didn't have to go and rescue all these ducks and things like that. But they were genuinely really disappointed. So um, after a while, they, they packed up and moved around until they actually found some some hunters. But we took the opportunity whilst we were there as well. Um, there was some media presence, uh, print media. So we took the opportunity to, to have a chat to them and explain some of the, the issues going on because, once again, the Andes had sort of told them, oh, well, yes, we're... Uh, duck hunting's a dying sport because there's no one here and all the rest of that. And we took the opportunity to explain, well, no, that's not the case. They just don't want the hassles and the and the conflict, so they've moved to other areas. Yeah, and they did. Um, and anything else about opening day, I suppose, it, it, it all went reasonably well. We moved to other areas, saw a lot of hunters who were having pretty good success. Uh, certainly a lot of birds around and a lot of young birds around, um, areas where we're seeing lots and lots of ducks. And the season went through... I think Daryl, you probably hunted more than anyone. Really good hunting conditions for the the very short duck season in Victoria. It seemed to be a really successful hunting season. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> there certainly wasn't any high concentrations. Well, there were some high concentrations of birds, but there certainly wasn't that concentration we've seen in other years when we go through sort of drying cycles and there's large concentrations of birds on lots of wetlands. But there was lots of birds across the landscape in general. Um, we hunted a lot in the sort of northeast area, which is good because it's been... It's been hit and miss up that part of the world. It's often quite dry and lack of water around the place, um, lack of wetlands, but um, we did really quite well. Most places we went, so it was good. And from everything we've heard, hunter compliance was really good throughout the season, which is always really encouraging. And that message has, has certainly gotten through to hunters that, that were on watch, but it was in line with hunter compliance in recent years, over the last five or six years, which is, has generally been very good. Yeah, I think most hunters know they're under scrutiny and under pressure at the moment and the last thing they need to do is go out and do something stupid. So I think that compliance has been really good for a number of years now. 
Yeah, and I think you've, you've got to keep compliance in perspective too. I mean, the overall compliance rates are really, really high. Um, when you compare them to uh, fishing compliance rates, uh, they're significantly better. Obviously, we would love to see 100% compliance, but uh, that just doesn't happen in, in any area of life. That's why we've got police. It's why we've got enforcement, because there's always somebody who will either deliberately or inadvertently do the wrong thing, uh, which is why you need that um, enforcement element out there. But uh, when you look at the figures, uh, the compliance uh, within duck hunting and hunting more generally is is really, really good. And the, the data coming out of the season will be interesting on hunter effort, but I suspect, and it's something that was touched on at the hearings last Friday, but certainly what I've seen amongst people I know is that hunters hunted as many times in this short season um, as they would have done had it been a full-length season. So to, to the extent that the decision was was based on limiting hunter activity. It'll be really interesting to see the data come out, but I think that was an absolute flop. Hunters seem to have said, well, we've got four weeks, so I'm going to hunt all four of them. It is. Look, the research has been done worldwide. The average hunter, go, you know, pick a number of times the average hunter goes hunting. You know, it's four times. The average hunter goes hunting four times. If the season's three months or, you know, six weeks, they're going to go hunting four times. So changing the season length makes very, very little difference. And, and I think we, we will have the data hopefully soon that that tells that story and that highlights once again what a what a pretty absurd decision was made this year. And we're still trying to understand those decisions and we're still seeking clarification from the relevant minister as to, to why these decisions have been made because we certainly can't work them out. They certainly went against the uh, advice of, of the experts within the departments who have come up with them. So, uh, yeah. There's, there's a fair bit that we're going to be interested to see what comes out of this season. And look, we hope it comes out. So we had a bit of shenanigans on the 2nd of May where GMA, as is their practice, as they've done in previous years, published the compliance data from the first seven days of the hunting season, which is, it's the it's the critical seven days. It's, it's when the bulk of the hunting activities happened. And it's a really good measure on whether you've got a problem or what's going on. It, it gives you a really good snapshot on what's going on with hunting. So we were happy that was published. We were advised it was published by somebody and about half an hour later. So by the time I was able to get my computer open and check, it had been pulled down. Um, now, we don't know for sure what happened there. Um, there's an article on our website. There was an article in the Weekly Times about it, um, but it it smacks of ministerial interference. So there was data in there that reflected pretty positively on hunting. I think it wasn't perfect. Um, it never is, as David just touched on. Um, it also probably told a story that the level of non-compliance from the anti-hunters was quite comparable to the level of non-compliance from hunters and included some stuff from the anti-hunters, um, probably the most serious one. And there were, there were two instances in that reporting of fail to immediately kill game, which is alive when recovered, which I think all of us sitting here and, and I'd hope pretty well all of our listeners would agree is something that's just completely not on. Um, so GMA detected two offences of that in the first seven days of the hunting season and one of them was a protester and one of them was a hunter. Um, and shame on both of them, is my view. That coincided with the annual Coalition Against Duck Shooting media event where they dump dead birds on the, out the front of one treasury, which is the Premier's private office. Highlight of the year, Barry. Highlight, Highlight of the year. Of the year. Um, we've been to a number of these things. 
I remember going to one. Um, the one advantage I think of having the season start later in the year and in the cooler months is that some of those birds, when it was happening in February, certainly in the middle of a heat wave in 40 degree heat, by the time they'd been in a plastic crate for seven days, (laughs) very unpleasant. Uh, The spell wasn't too bad this year. So Daryl and I attended, it wasn't great, but (laughs) everything's relative. Yes, that's Um, right. So what what did we see there that morning, Daryl? Look, so look, they presented approximately 90 birds. Uh, majority of those are game birds, so they are either birds that were taken from hunters or, or a number of them would have been shot by hunters and unable to be retrieved. Um, and some had obviously died of natural causes. So of the, of the approximately 90, it doesn't mind have been 89, 90, uh, 73 of those are actually game birds. So, you know, um, there's all this talk about illegal activity and, well, I'm not sure it's illegal to lose a bird, but... So. Take it, take what you will from that. There wasn't a couple of shovelers. Um, shovelers are often mistaken for game birds. It's not um, too hard to understand, too hard head. Uh, there was one freckle duck, um, and there was a number of other birds that were described to me as, as endangered birds. So while uh, one of the birds in there may have been endangered, I don't think coots and grebes last time I checked were terribly endangered. But there's this, this understanding that there's terrible lawbreakers and all these endangered birds and the majority of the birds in that case were game birds. Yeah, I, I personally witnessed that when um, one of the morning we went there as well. Um, I've personally seen the protesters have a, a live bird. I think it was injured and they failed to dispatch that bird. I think the whole process took about at least half an hour. Yeah. I went there, I personally spoken to them, um, trying to be friendly, trying to tell them to do the right thing. I was told off. I was swear that I was kicked away. Um, so thank you very much. All right, that's one. I'll leave. Um, but what I've seen is is not acceptable, um, and I think that bird wasn't treated properly um, after it was dispatched. And from my understanding, they were waiting for the camera to come and take photos, and that's really unacceptable. Look, it's Christmas for these guys. <laughs> you know, I've never seen so many people devastated by hunting standing there and smiling and taking photos so much. And not not all of them. Um, a number of them. Not all. We, we engage with a few of those people who I would describe as sincere but misguided we, we would say they're misguided but yeah there's some gen- there's some very genuine people in amongst that group and um, and we spoke to to a lot of them uh, but yes you have got your your extremist views and uh, I certainly witnessed part of what Fadi saw there and uh, yes there was definitely a waiting for the camera and there was definitely a few of them were were very excited and smiling because they actually had a, a bird there that they could take some photos of and and use as a media prop um, obviously that bird should have been dispatched immediately. Um, that, that raises a whole heap of questions about these so-called duck rescues. It'd be re- really interesting to see the uh, the figures on how many birds that they've supposedly rescued over the years have actually been no, um, released and um, and rehabilitated because if, if the number is really low, then obviously it's not working and they're not rescuing anything and all they're doing is prolonging um, any discomfort for those animals. So therefore they should be, any birds that they find that are wounded, should they should actually be dispatching them immediately. So there's no rescuing. All the ducks are dead. They're either dead or they take photos and then they get, they get euthanised. They're all dead. If they were alive, they'd be displaying these recovered birds outside of Treasury Place, not these dead ones. And, and of the birds paraded at Treasury Place... Um, a number of them, I would say, undeniably were shot and lost or no, no, no. whatever happened by hunters. Um, a number of them clearly weren't. We don't know the exact figures, but 
certainly there were some birds that we were looking at that morning that we commented that they're going to need to carbon date them to yeah, to determine the cause of, cause of death. How some anyone certainly weren't a couple of days old, that's for sure. How anyone could feasibly pick that thing up and conclude that it had recently ceased to exist or ceased to live. Oh. Or... I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but there's this understanding that these ducks, if they don't get hunted, go on to live forever. You know, they all die. <laughs> Whether they're shot, whether they starve, whether you know, none of them get old and just die merely in their nest with their you know, little ducklings. They all die. So there's there's dead birds in the environment. You spend enough time in wetlands, you're going to find some dead birds. But particularly with highly fecund things like birds, that yeah, they they breed a lot and they die a lot. So we move into um, the big thing that's happening, which is this parliamentary inquiry, and WSWA Victoria um, made a submission to that, which is published on. The association's website, I don't think it's published on the Parliament website yet, but it might be by the time this podcast has gone up. But the Parliament website is struggling because this inquiry has had a record number of submissions, somewhere over 9,000. So they're getting them up, but they're working their way through them quite slowly. Um, Daryl and Fatty also made private submissions, which Fatty questioned me how, how I found his submission. Oh, no, how did I- you find it? Scrolling through. out of two thousand, how many 2000 fa- how many fatty caliphs are there and that are putting a submission into the duck? So I scrolled through it, um, and you spoke about your upbringing, um, not in Australia, and and how bird hunting came to you, and and how correct it is. that's that's all I've done when I was a kid. It's, it's bird hu- bird hunting uh, with shotguns. Um, my gra- grandfather introduced me to the sport at a young age, um, taught me what to do taught me the law. Um, there was not much law back then, but there was things that we used to do that they are they are law at the moment, like how we store firearms, how we store ammunition. It was all set, set up in a, in a safe way. And if I do something wrong, I'll, I'll give it a clip behind the ear and get grounded for a month. I'm not allowed to touch firearms until I prove myself. That's how I grew up. And um, and I've got lots of memories. I thank my grandfather for, for introducing me for the, to the sport. And um, I've got lots of fond memories uh, from that growing up. Um, In my submission, I mentioned that I'm a father at the moment and I'm introducing my daughters to hunting. And to be honest, they love it. And we have the best time in the bush. We don't have to hunt anything or get anything or or shoot anything. Uh, We just, the fact that we're there together looking for things, uh, it's it's enjoyable. And it's good memories for my children and and we just bond. And we're seeing hundreds, and I'll, I'll say by the time we've seen, we're seeing thousands of submissions from hunters telling those stories, which I think it's really, really important for these people to understand that these are real people. This means something. Anyone can relate to that. Very yeah. real to them. Um, whilst it's really important that organisations like WSWA Victoria put in technical submissions and and make technical and political points, I think it's really important that everyday hunters have done that. So. I suppose not not for us to thank them, but thank you to everyone who did take the time and put a submission in. I think it's really important. It is really important and it's it's a great effort. We obviously don't know how many of the Andes have put them in. I've been going through quite a few and it seems to have been fairly even sort of from what I've gone through so far. But most of the anti ones that I've seen, it's just, um, oh, I don't agree with duck hunting, it's cruel, uh, ban it. 
Whereas uh, what we're seeing is the hunters out there. It's this is what this is their their activity. This is their cultural traditions. Um, and as I said, sort of right at the start, it's really important that we get that messaging across um, to the powers that be that are making those decisions, so that they know that uh, the decisions they make are going to have a human impact. It's, it's not just this faceless group of uh, rednecks out there. Uh, these are real people, real families, real traditions. Uh, that their decisions are going to impact on. And, and then on top of that, of course, the association's put in a 30-page a submission. It's got over 100 references in it um, and very evidence-based. Um, and we've, we've spoken about this probably before, but the issue we've got that our opponents don't have is that our opponents are in a majority cultural position. They have a sympathetic media. We don't. Everything we say is open to question. That's not fair. That's just the way the world is. So everything that the association has said in this submission, we back up with an independent reference and a strong, solid independent reference so that the MPs on this inquiry and anyone else can read WSWA Victoria's submission and know that we can back up every word that we say because it's really important that they believe us, of course, um, in order for us to ultimately get the result we want, which... That's what we're all about. Um, and we start off with concerns about the government's bias um, in the submission, which is a pretty heavy way to start, particularly when you're trying to impress um, government MPs, I suppose. But it really had to be called out in that the only speaker the government had moving for the inquiry, uh, I think we touched on this in the last podcast, was just hopelessly biased. And our submission goes into some detail, pulling apart what she said um, correcting the facts, making recommendations that the inquiry actually corrects a number of things she said because not because we don't agree with them, because they are just blatantly, demonstrably, factually incorrect. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. I mean, everyone has an opinion on things, um, but if we've got a representative of the government standing up and, and launching an inquiry and making factually incorrect statements, um, they have to be called out, and we've certainly done that. And we also go into um, the role of the RSPCA, and it's not not generally our practice to comment on opposing interest groups. They've, this is a, an open inquiry that's here to hear the views of the entire community including us and people who don't agree with us. Uh, but the RSPCA is different because they've got this this dual role. This They're both a state-sanctioned regulator and an increasingly partisan animal rights group. And we needed the committee to understand or at least hear our argument that the RSPCA has a real, real trouble being both things and that for the purposes of this committee... They're there as an ideological animal rights group, not as a government regulator, and they should be given the same credibility as, well, I'd actually argue, based on my dealings over the years, less credibility than animal rights groups like Animals Australia. So we, we touched on that specifically um, just because of that deeply conflicted um, and we'd argue inappropriate role, I suppose, that the RSPCA play. And then we got into the terms of reference for the actual inquiry. So stuff like interim harvest and adaptive harvest, which we touched on in detail last time, Daryl. Yeah, we just quickly run over. Yeah, so basically uh, the terms of reference included four things. So the operations on hunting seasons, um, how seasons operate in other jurisdictions, sustainability and economics, and under sustainability I'd add wounding in there as well probably. <clears throat> but as far as, if you excuse my coughing, I'm just getting over COVID <laughs> again. Um, so with the interim harvest model, adaptive harvest model, um, we certainly talked about that 
in how the seasons are operating in Victoria at the moment. So at the moment we're operating under an interim harvest model, um, building up towards an adaptive harvest model. These are all agreed to things and funded by government under the Sustainable Hunting Action Plan. Unfortunately, government's gone <laughs> against some of that advice, but we certainly see the future, and certainly the future the management of hunting in Victoria under these um, models. So an interim harvest model running up um, for another couple of years while we build data to put into an adaptive harvest model. The main things with those are around sustainability. Um, you know, the main arguments in this argument are around sustainability and these things address sustainability. These things prove that the hunting of native waterbirds in Victoria is sustainable. So really, really important that we back them and support them and, and try and push government to not just uh, build these models but actually <laughs> take note of the outputs. And, and the other things in the management of the seasons were um, issues around compliance and the season closure processes, which were really um, played pretty hard this year, the season closure processes. Yeah, they absolutely have. And we talked about compliance before and the information we've got this year um, with those figures that were put up and then taken down is that compliance is overall um, excellent um, and it has been for the last uh, number of years. But yeah, the um, the closure process and we've made recommendations um, in our submission on that. Uh, there's a process at the moment. Um, once again, it's it's probably improved a little bit over time, but it's got a long way to go. Um, it really needs to be transparent. Uh, we really need to, to look at it. And the closure of public wetlands should be the last resort um, when looking at, at managing potential impacts. Uh, at the moment, what's happened this year, it uh, seems to have been the first and only management that's been considered. And um, there's been a whole heap of wetlands shut. Uh, it's rather ironic and uh, a bit uh, upsetting for hunters that um, a number of the wetlands are being closed because there's excessive numbers of uh, blue wing shoveler, which are still on the game species list but aren't able to be hunted um, this year um, and neither for the last few years because of declining numbers. But we certainly seem to be seeing a resurgence in the numbers and it'll be interesting to see uh, what the counts show there and um, whether potentially uh, we should be able to get them back onto the, uh, the game list at some stage. Obviously, needs to be carefully managed. Uh, we obviously have um, other cases where we've got endangered species. Uh, fishing is a, is a classic example where we've got southern bluefin tuna and Murray cod are on that list. Uh, and yet we still have a managed fishery uh, where a number of those fish can be taken. Um, there are obviously season limits and bag limits and all the rest of it, but uh, they can actually take those animals. And we can see no logical reason uh, with the appropriate science why blue-winged shovelers and hardhead uh, shouldn't be treated exactly the same way as those fishing resources. Yeah, so work to do there. Um, certainly not our biggest issue, of course, at the moment, but certainly for the long-term management of duck hunting, there's there's work to do on that closure process. Uh, probably the biggest thing um, you look at, our interim harvest model, our adaptive harvest model, um, putting that sustainability question really beyond doubt to any reasonable person. Probably the biggest thing that this inquiry is going to grapple with, the most controversial thing and the thing that's probably the biggest threat to us is wounding. Um, and we spoke in our submission, more than spoke in our submission, about the Wounding Reduction Action Plan. Yeah, and that's, uh, that plan's been worked on for the last uh, number of years. Um, there's been a lot of work going into that from a wide range of stakeholders, um, hunting stakeholders, industry stakeholders, and, uh, and animal welfare stakeholders. RSPCA had a representative on that, uh, that group. Um, the recommendations went to the minister at the time in October, um, and for whatever reason, they were not released. 
which was particularly concerning given that uh, the Minister cited concerns about wounding um, as one of the reasons for the shortened season uh, this year. Um, whereas all the all the concerns about wounding are addressed in that plan, and it shows a really good way forward um, for us to progress over over coming years. We had the the plan released under Freedom of Information, or not us, but it was released under Freedom of Information, and we have included it in um, in our submission to government because we think it's extremely important that uh, the inquiry and the committee members. Uh, are able to see that document. Uh, we're not sure whether the document would have been produced uh, from the Minister's office, uh, but we think it's absolutely vital, given the concerns around wounding and where we need to go with wounding, uh, that the committee actually got to see uh, what was there. Of everything that goes in front of this committee, I think the risk that they wouldn't see that document and what presents a really, really credible evidence-based, uh, based on international experience, path forward for duck hunting in Victoria, the the notion that that could have been suppressed from this committee, which it could have been, just a risk WSWA Victoria wasn't prepared to take. No, no, the, the committee needs to see that. And uh, it's it's really concerning to us that, uh, that that was on the cards. They may not have got to see it. Um, it's it's just quite uh, quite mind-blowing, actually, that uh, the work that's gone into that, uh, that shows a clear way forward and addresses the concerns about wounding, um, that it mightn't have been uh, made available to them. Well, they've got it now. And another one of the terms of reference, which um, which really speaks to the politics of this whole inquiry, is about arrangements in other jurisdictions. This notion that it should matter to Victoria. What happens in other jurisdictions? But um, Daryl made a submission of his own that the WSWA Victoria submission then referenced heavily or borrowed heavily from about... Um, some of the stuff in other jurisdictions that was quite interesting, Daryl. Yeah, so obviously in Australia, we hear in the media a lot that there's recreational duck hunting in Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. I don't know why. I think they use the word states, so they just can ignore a territory, but there's certainly a territory as well. So the Northern Territory, South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania all have recreational duck hunting seasons. Obviously, New South Wales has some recreational hunting under the Native Game Bird Management Program, which is all quite interesting, but... I looked at it a bit more of a global perspective. Those that know me and have heard me talk know I've hunted a fair bit overseas as well. And something about overseas and progressive countries. And anyway, I ended up finding the uh, Social Progress Index, so which is quite interesting. Um, Victoria and the Victorian government likes to say how they're socially progressive. So I thought, no, hang on a second. So I had a look at this Social Progress Industry uh, Index, which lists 169 countries. I didn't want to go and check all 169 or whether we could hunt ducks in them, but uh, I decided to grab the top 25 and surprisingly, uh, every one of the top 25 countries in that social uh, progress index allows hunting. And when you look at um, countries that are quite progressive, you know, we're talking about Austria, Belgium, Canada, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland. No, you're, you're wrong, Daryl, because banning duck hunting would be a progressive thing for a progressive government to do. So the Japanese and the Italians and the uh, <laughs> and the Dutch and New Zealand and Norway and Portu Portuguese don't agree with you, unfortunately. No, you, well, you, you must be wrong, and the objective evidence from all these progressive countries overseas must be wrong. Yeah, so um, my advice to the Victorian government, if you want to be socially progressive, is uh, perhaps uh, we should expand duck hunting and, uh, and manage it a lot better than we do currently. I think we'd all agree with that. And then we move on to the environmental sustainability and impact. And, and one of these, there's a number of things that we get bandied around as an excuse for governments not to do anything 
or to, oh, well, let's just be safe and not do anything. And one of them is this notion of the precautionary principle. And we actually heard that thrown around in the hearings on Friday, which um, we'll talk about the hearings in a minute, I suppose. Um, It's not an excuse. This idea of the precautionary principle is not an excuse to not do anything. And again, it's one of those things that it's really important that the select committee understands. So it's outlined in law in Victoria. Um, and it's outlined in law that decision makers have got to consider it if there are threats to serious or irreversible environmental damage. Um, it then says that a lack of scientific certainty shouldn't be used as a reason for postponing measures to prevent environmental degradation. So the notion that regulated duck hunting under the interim harvest model, under an adaptive harvest model, is posing a serious and irreversible threat to the environment is just nonsense. Um, and therefore the invocation of this precautionary principle as a reason not to have duck hunting. People who are government ministers who are advised by um, very, very well-versed bureaucrats and have access to government solicitors' offices and all sorts of people should know better than to make statements like that. It's just it's just nonsense. Um, another one we hear bandied around, which I know you've done some work on, Daryl, is Ramsar wetlands. You, you can't, you quite often see that it's thrown in as a bit of mayo on top, I suppose, is that they're, they're hunting these ducks in our Ramsar wetlands. Yeah, that's right. Um, there seems to be this belief that when Ramsar wetlands get listed, all of a sudden they become these tropical oases. And I think I heard it described uh, outside Treasury Place recently that if we got rid of duck hunting, these Victorian Ramsar wetlands would be the next kakadu. And it's going to rival the Phillip Island Penguin Parade. Isn't North Shore and Geelong part of a Ramsar wetland? Yeah, so look, I've hunted in Ramsar wetlands here and in New Zealand and in Canada, and there's this thing, the sustainable principle um, of Ramsar is wise use, and it's defined as the maintenance of the ecological character. So unless um, duck hunting somehow removes that ecological character, it fits directly under the, the principle of wise use with Ramsar. And Ramsar doesn't, you know, doesn't, rule out hunting or fishing it it's just that the sustainable use of that resource um and if it it manages it, it maintains that ecological character it fits within that wise use principle so you know if, if we were going to go out and exterminate species or you know drag every fish out of the wetland it, it wouldn't fit within that wise use principle but wise use of the land includes hunting and fishing but you know victoria we want to apply the precautionary principle to ramsar wetlands as well oh well perhaps we'll well perhaps we won't um, yeah, certainly it's, it's, no evidence to support that we're going to do any of those things. So, um, yeah, the, the the whole thing with Ramsar is about the wise use of those wetlands and maintaining their ecological character. So Ramsar and what and precautionary principle go on our word list for our our buzzword bingo. Yeah, I like wise use and it comes up a lot. And you can interpret what wise use however you want, but Ramsar define it as the maintenance of the ecological character. So. I mean, that's what recreational hunting is all about, sustainable use of a natural resource. It's self-fulfilling. So you take off a surplus each year, the base population continues in perpetuity. It's one of the few truly um, sort of uh, sustainable activities that we've actually got. Yeah, it's wise use of that asset. Is wise use, you know, logging it, you know, cutting out all the red gum and uh, selling it for firewood? Is wise use ploughing the the bed of the lake when it's dry and putting a wheat crop in? Is wise use uh, allowing mineral resource extraction uh, my answer to all those would be no, and yet all those things happen in Victoria in uh, maybe some of them are Ranzo wetlands, but certainly within the State Game Reserve system. 
So if you want to talk about wise use, let's let's broaden that term a little bit and look at some of the other uses that these wetlands are being used for. And, and we look at um, what they are being used for is all this question, which is, again, part of that term of reference, which is the amenity of hunting. Um, like Fatty, you touched on that really heavily in your submission, is amenities are two-way street. Um, so for you, the impact on amenity of having those state game reserves available is pretty positive. Correct, yeah. Look, I, I grew up with the idea that hunting is is a sustainable activity. Um, it, it's always been, and it's always should be. Um, you control the numbers, as David said. Um, it's good for everyone. It's good for for nature. It's good for the animals. Um, enough resources for for all the animals to consume. If if there's so the numbers are are big, um, definitely those those ducks or animals they're not gonna live nicely in the bush because they're not gonna find resources to to survive. Yeah, so the, the whole amenity thing, I mean, it's obviously a, a very subjective area. Uh, people um, experience things differently, but um, the way that the discussion has sort of been couched at the moment is that um, the, the amenity is being impacted by those people who don't hunt ducks by, by duck hunters, but you've got to look at it the other way as well and, and the benefits and the amenity hunters get out of those areas, as, as we've discussed. And also the fact that those areas, especially the state game reserves, only exist because hunters recognised that the biggest threat to um, duck populations uh, back in the 1950s and 60s was loss of habitat. So they actually stumped up, put their hands in their pockets, um, encouraged government to invest, um, paid licences to, to fund the purchase of those wetlands so that they actually still exist today. And so everybody has use of those uh, wetlands. Hunting goes for about three months of the year. Um, other people are welcome in those wetlands during those times outside the sort of prescribed uh, times when they shouldn't be in the water, but they can use them 365 days of the year. Hunters use them for that uh, that three months. And it seems that um, a lot of people are, like the wetlands. They've moved into those areas. They've moved around uh, close to some of those areas, done the old tree change thing, um, and obviously have a particular view about how living in the country should be without sort of actually doing some research and understanding that these practices have been going on for generations and generations. And just because you move into an area doesn't mean they should have to stop because you have to listen to some uh, some gunfire occasionally. Um, you use the analogy of somebody buys a, a house somewhere near the freeway or near a, a, a train line or near the airport and uh, then complain because the there's noise. a bit of noise and that you go, well, hang on, you you move there. Um, yeah, put up with uh, with what's actually going on. Which leads us into another bit on that amenity um, question, I suppose, which is the balancing of the rights of protesters with the rights of duck hunters. And this is, um, whilst we're really careful, protesters are not the problem for duck hunting in Victoria. People having a difference of opinion with us and protesting duck hunting is not the problem with duck hunting in Victoria. But that doesn't mean it's not a problem. Um, and it is a problem. And it's, a it's certainly a challenge. And it's the licence, I suppose, that is given to those protesters. It's really hard to make analogies. You can make an analogy with the Melbourne Cup. Now, people can stand outside the Melbourne Cup and protest the Melbourne Cup and say what a terrible thing it is. They can't run out on the track. Um, people could stand and protest the AFL football because there's a heap of people with kangaroos on their feet kicking a kangaroo around for a couple of hours. They can't run out on the ground. Uh, and those rights need to be balanced. And we've made a recommendation that the Select Committee recommends that the government 
restricts the protesters' capacity to hinder the lawful conduct of duck huntings. No one's questioning their right to protest. It's part of the democracy. No. You know, we, we have our, our hunters and our members wanting the same thing. Oh, let's go and protest. Well, we're going to go and protest. That's all right. And, and we have the right to do that. But the, the other side of the coin is, is so does the, the anti-movement, the, the other side of the coin. They've got the right to protest. It's just about how and where they have that right to protest. As you said, I don't see them stopping the Melbourne Cup because there's protesters. The police go out and drag them off and put them in the back of a van and go lock them up. Um, I have no problem with duck hunting protesting. I attend, I attend a lot of the protests. I'm not sure I enjoy it, but I attend a lot of the protests. And look, they've got their right to protest. I have no issue whatsoever. If you want to stand out in the road outside of like knock yourself out car park in government parliament whatever you want but in a wetland during active hunting is not the place to to hold your protest and we've got a right we as hunters have got a right to enjoy our active recreation our legal pursuits unhindered by that relatively unhindered by that um there has to be there's always a balance of those rights and anyway in our submission that balance isn't right so we go into that um, we also looked at public opinion. So SSAA Victoria actually um, commissioned some rigorous polling in February on the duck hunting issue. And we did that because there's a lot of stuff put out. Um, we Again, we heard it in the hearings on Friday and bandied around on polling figures on the opposition to duck hunting by Victorians and that that's somehow a rationale to ban it because you know, people, when they're asked, do you like duck hunting, say no, apparently. There are a couple of things that we thought were missing in the public reporting of that polling. Um, and the main thing that we've never seen in any of the public reporting of these polls that have been commissioned by the antis over the years, and these things cost quite a lot of money and typically do quite a lot of research, is how a ban on duck hunting would change the votes of people. Because if you're going to make a proposition that this is all politics, and let's face it, a fair chunk of this is politics, and that it would be politically a really smart thing to do to ban duck hunting, then without telling the MPs how banning duck hunting would change people's votes, you're not really telling them anything at all. So the antis, first, I don't believe they haven't polled how it would change the vote. I just believe they haven't reported how it would change the vote. Wouldn't quite suit the agenda that they're trying to push, I don't think, from the results we got. It wouldn't. And if you go to to real politics, to the politics that matters, um, it matters in marginal seats. The, the, the hard reality is the vast bulk of Victoria doesn't matter politically. Where I live, um, there was a supplementary election and one of the major parties didn't even run a candidate because that seat, the, the fate, what's the point? The, the fate of that seat was so well known. So how people would change their votes in my electorate, for example, I don't think there'd be any people in political parties losing a great deal of sleep over that. So we went and asked the question in seven marginal Labor-held outer metropolitan and regional electorates, and we chose them very deliberately because that's sort of the ring where there's the highest concentration of duck hunters. And it, we go into a fair bit of detail in that in our submission, which people can read online, but basically in those regions... Generally, around 50% of people, when they were asked outright, opposed a ban on duck hunting. Around half of the community, when they were asked, not, you know, on the fence, opposed a ban on duck hunting. And the support for a ban on duck hunting was somewhere between 25 and 30% in most of those electorates. So 
whilst we're told pretty well the flip when you look at a statewide figure, um, the statewide figure probably includes areas like the studio we're sitting in in Brunswick right now, um, it doesn't include those key marginal seats. That's, that's a very different story and it's, it's basically the reverse of the narrative the Andes are saying. And the other thing that it showed was that in certainly in a few of those seats that are held on, on very slim margins by Labor, enough voters would change their votes based on a duck hunting ban to have cost them the seat at the last election. We can't say what would happen at the next election. But had Labor gone to the November election in Bass, according to our polling, if they'd have gone to the November election saying they were going to ban duck hunting, they wouldn't have got over the line in the seat of Bass. Um, and there's other seats, Rippon's another one that they probably wouldn't have got over the line in. So maybe that's a clue as to why there was no policy put out before the election. We don't know. But the association invested, um, we won't say how much, but tens of thousands of dollars. This sort of research doesn't come cheap. But we thought it was a very important question for us to answer. Um, the other important question, I suppose, in front of the committee was the question of economics um, and the question of the economic contribution of duck hunting and this question that it can be substituted for. And the key point about economics and something that our associations have said consistently over the last decade that there's been these reports is the gross state product stuff's interesting and, and those headline figures and, you know, that, that first report came out in 2013. There was a report on Channel 7 News saying that hunting's worth more to the Victorian economy than the Melbourne Cup. That was a great headline and we loved all that. But consistently from then, our associations have been saying what really matters is the regional impact. And when you start making an argument that if I didn't spend my money in Kerrang, I'd spend it elsewhere... That's probably true. For most of us who aren't super wealthy, um, we spend our income. Yeah, well, I, 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 can't, I can't believe there's too many duck hunters that um, would, would give up duck hunting and go home and put the money in the bank. No, no. But, but to then make that argument that because they would spend that money elsewhere, it doesn't matter, sure as hell matters to the bloke who runs the Exchange Hotel in Kerrang. Sure as hell matters to the bloke who runs the bakery in Rosedale. Um, those regional impacts are real and condensing it to gross state product really misses the point. That whole substitutability sort of argument is uh, is a really interesting one because what we've actually got is where those those surveys show what is happening at the moment. They, they're not speculative. They actually show what's going on and where people are spending their money. That's, that's facts-based. Uh, this substitutability is putting in all these hypothetical situations and if this happened, if that happened, blah, 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 are you going to go and spend your money there? Um, governments don't do that with a whole heap of other uh, different things where they're doing economic surveys. I mean, you don't discount the entire, for example, lamb industry by saying, okay, well, it, it might be worth whatever it is, $150 million, um, but let's ignore that because if lamb wasn't available, uh, people would go and spend their money on beef. That might well be... True, they've got to go and spend their money on something, but you can't discount an entire industry um, where people are really spending money now on the basis that, oh, well, they might go and spend it somewhere else. And I think Victorians who haven't blocked it out of their brains from PTSD might remember a very senior figure in this state spending a couple of hundred days um, doing consecutive press conferences, repeating a mantra that the actuals trump the projections every time when you're dealing with data. Um, that 
the real data is far more important than the projected data. I think that point was, I don't think you could have been living in Victoria in the last few years and not heard that point driven home by a very senior person. Yeah, I guess one of the important things is there that it shows that there's an investment by government in um, in native bird hunting, in quail hunting and duck hunting. So there is an investment, there is a cost of licensing, there's a cost of enforcement, there's a cost of GMA, but it shows that that investment has a return and the return is greater than the investment. So it's not it's not costing money as such. It's uh, it's making a return. Yes, has a net benefit to the state. And as Barry, Barry was saying, a lot of that is going into regional areas. So um, that and that's really important. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have been going to Kerrang and spending four nights in motels and supporting the local businesses um, if it wasn't for duck hunting. So the big thing that's happening right now with this select committee inquiry is they started their public hearings on Friday. Um, so the last Friday of the Victorian duck season, um, the public hearings commenced. Um, and they they commenced with hearings from a number of ecologists, so Professors Kingsford and Clarkson, and economists, so RMCG and the Australia Institute, and and the other ecologists were Professor Brian Hiller and Dr Holly Sitters. Um, so there were seven witnesses gave evidence to the committee on Friday. Uh, two of them appeared in person. Um, seven appeared via video link, which is um, I've seen quite a number of these inquiries over the years and there's always been the odd appearance by video link. Um, but again, coming out of COVID and, and this new digital age where meetings have moved there, it's really testament that um, it's become so um, ingrained, this technology, that most people now are choosing to operate that way rather than schlep all their way into the city, I suppose, or into Melbourne from interstate perhaps and attend a hearing when they can just do it by video link. Um these are public hearings, so people can come and watch. Um, I actually watched via video link, um, which I found far more comfortable and far more productive. I could monitor different computer screens and take better notes and and be more comfortable and have less distractions watching it via video link than watching in the public gallery. But uh, a great feature of our democracy is that it's done in public and that the public can go into the gallery and watch. So there, there will be more of these public hearings. Don't know yet if there'll be regional hearings. There'll certainly be regional trips for the committee. Um, but encourage hunters to watch online, certainly, and be engaged. And if if you want to, it's um, it's an experience of itself, I suppose. You go through security and, and you do get to sit face-to-face, you know, in a room with the people who are, are looking into our activity. But um, for mine, it's, it's probably far more productive to sit and watch them online and I got a bit more out of it. Um, the first of our witnesses up were probably, when you look at a sustainability point of view, probably the most important. Um, most duck hunters, I suspect, would know the names of Professors Richard Kingsford and Professor Marcel Clarkson. Uh, their names are deeply intertwined with the politics around duck hunting in Victoria. You've had a fair bit of experience with those names over the years, Daryl. Yeah, well, Professor Kingsford's been around... Uh, since 1986, um, originally had a role within the Department of New South Wales and has since moved to the University of New South Wales. But um, Richard Kingsford is Australia's water bird expert. Whenever there's any discussions about wetlands and water birds in Australia, um, Richard seems to pop up. He is no friend of hunting. He's not a duck hunter. He's not associated with duck hunting in any way, shape or form. But it was interesting the way he spoke about duck hunting. Um, 
and its impact on those populations. So obviously, um, Richard's been around a long while, involved in the East Australian Waterfowl Survey, which is the longest, longitudinal study of water birds in the world. And I think, I think it's one of the longest running wildlife studies in the world. It's been running nearly 40 years since 1986. He's involved in the original creation of the Adaptive Harvest Model, which is an ongoing battle, one of my pet projects, uh, and also involved with the development of the Interim Harvest Model, which is the model we're, we're advocating for at the moment. Um, Professor Clarson's probably not as well known. Um, He's a professor working currently at Deakin University from um, the Netherlands. He is a wader um, shorebird migratory bird expert and also an ex- expert in um, waterfowl or bird population dynamics and modelling. So really interesting guys. Again, neither of them are, are hunters as such. Um, Klassen has Professor Klassen has used um, some stuff with field and game in the past, so he is he works on avian influenza, so has used some field and game resources and some field and game people to help him with that. So he's collected samples, uh, both from dead birds and they've done some live bird capture stuff as well. So he's no, he's he knows field and game. He knows hunting quite well. Not a hunter himself and no sort of affiliations, but understands what we do and how we do it. So it's pretty interesting to have those guys up on the stand straight up. And there was the discussion was around sustainability, and the question. You know, ultimately was our straight up is waterfowl hunting sustainable? And the response was, well, is population sustainable? So there was certainly no, you know, hunting's gonna devastate populations of birds. That all it all came back to to um, habitat and habitat loss. So there's no disputing that, you know, this longitudinal study has showed a, a longitudinal decrease in water bird populations, but is hunting driving that? population decrease and if it was you'd, you'd see these populations being more stable in places where hunting recreational hunting wasn't permitted but it hasn't that doesn't none of these research shows any of that and kingsford was was quite open um quite surprised <laughs> at times even with some of his responses um that you know hunting isn't the issue hunting plays a part but numerous times his responses were the the, the role that hunting plays is a tiny part of the equation we need to look at you know habitat loss, climate change, and all these other um, factors that are influencing water bird populations. So yeah, I thought it was that was the high, certainly the highlight of the hearings on Friday was hearing from those two. Um, Professor Clarkson was also asked around the interim harvest model um, and around setting daily bag limits rather than adjusting seasonal length. And it was really interesting that that they were both in agreement that the changing of this of seasonal length has no um, observable impact on harvest. Um, and it was also interesting the comments around why we had modified season length this year and the reasoning behind it. And they they both openly stated that there was no reasoning behind it and that political decisions had been made, which is a bit disappointing. You know, a lot of work, especially from these two individuals, has been put into what if these waterfowl modelling. And just to ignore the outputs is, you know, crazy. Yeah, it's um, the chair of the committee, Ryan Batchelor, when he introduced Professors Kingsford and Clarkson, um, stated that they're providing foundational evidence to the inquiry. I think that was a really good description of what they did. I think when you look at the sustainability issue, the environmental issue, um, the evidence from those two is probably, I can't see the inquiry hearing evidence from anyone else that will be as important as what those two experts said. Oh, certainly when it comes to, to water birds in Australia, they're, they're the 
preeminent guys. They're the guys. <laughs> and a, a thing I found really interesting that was put to them, um, what would happen to the data collection if there was no hunting? Um, and they both absolutely expressed a hope that it would continue and made a point, I think, that stuff like the uh, data collection on avian influenza would continue and there's other groups that are not hunting groups that are also involved in that, but uh, also made the point that banning hunting would not affect duck, not increase duck hunters in any meaningful way, but it would significantly undermine our understanding of ducks. Why would you do the monitoring research you do now? So a lot of the... Certainly in the Eastern Australian Aerial Waterbird Survey, a lot of that funding comes <laughs> from hunting because it is used for the regulation. Would that continue? I'm sure the study would continue. It was questioned the validity of, of the science and the data from the, from the Eastern Australian Waterbird Survey. Can it be done better? Of course it can. It, it takes money. Um, to do a survey of that size takes a huge amount of money. And, and Professor Kingsford made the point too that the, the stuff they're looking at, there's 50-plus species of waterbirds that are in decline. Yeah, in Australia, um, of which it's not a game bird problem. Some, it's, it's not a hunting related yeah. game bird problem. It's a it's a water bird problem. It's a worldwide problem, not just here. Yeah, and that was another interesting thing that came out was that these problems are not unique to Australia. These are these are problems with wetlands, especially when you take climate change into in foot climate change into the thing as well. And some places are getting wetter, some places are getting get drier. And I spent some time in North America where. You know, we're not talking about a degree or two. We're talking to eight or ten degree changes and, and ice caps changing and, and you know, some places will be wetter and some places are going to be dry. Um, the other thing I found really um, useful from a hunting perspective from their evidence was they both expressed a real confidence that the path that Victoria is on with interim harvest and adaptive harvest um, puts the season conditions on a really rigorous basis, um, that, 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 that duck hunting under those conditions isn't going to pose a threat to the sustainability of our wild ducks. So there are things that pose threats to the sustainability of our wild ducks, but duck hunting under those conditions really isn't one of them. I thought that was very useful evidence. Yeah, look, it's highly regulated in a, a, a small part of Australia, you know, the southeast corner of Australia. And a relatively small number of birds compared to, at a population scale, I mean, you know, certainly you're going to get local impacts if you shoot a lot of birds from an area um, but at a population scale the impacts are going to be almost immeasurable and yeah look they were asked that question around what percentage of, of the of the you know national population was harvested and, and that question wasn't answered but nobody knows nobody knows how many ducks they are but we certainly have done some modeling in Victoria and the percentage just in Victoria is you know sub 10 percent. So on a national scale, you know, we're talking eight percent, maybe, maybe less. So it, it's a tiny fraction of birds that are harvested in the in the overall population. Another thing that struck me about um, Professor Kingsford's evidence, um, just how honest he was about the limitations of his own study. So he was quite objective and honest, and and was saying, well, yes, I miss birds that are that are breeding because that's really you can't count them from a an aeroplane while they're huddled up breeding and I miss birds that aren't on the transects where I am. And um, a lot of the criticisms that people who would malign his work throw at him, he's actually quite open and objective and saying, well, that's just a statement of fact. I think he's well aware of the limitations. The next witness up was RM Consulting. So we looked at the economics earlier um, and they spoke along the lines of of the benefits of hunting to regional Victoria. They also... um, 
answered quite a few questions about their methodology and how they go about um, putting their reports together, um, including answering what I thought was a fairly bizarre and frankly disgraceful allegation by an anti-hunting MP that we, so SSAA Victoria, Field and Game Australia, Australian Deer Association, Vicount Hunters, the the hunting organisations had effectively encouraged our members to lie on these surveys. Um, RM went into some detail to explain how they used heavily relied on the data from the most recent trip to ensure accuracy and how that they they weighted their data, how they checked the integrity of their data and went into some great detail to um, rebut that. Like I said, I thought it was, it was quite a bizarre allegation that was made. Um, but their evidence, I think, came across as very credible. Yeah, I certainly think it did. And, uh, yeah, SSAA, along with the other major hunting organisations, certainly encouraged their members to participate in that um, in that survey when it was done because we wanted as big a sample size as possible. And, obviously, the bigger the sample size, uh, the more valid are the results that uh, they can take out of it, which was sort of in contrast to um, some of the other surveys that have been done by uh, some of the anti-organisations uh, where there's been very small numbers of participants involved. Which leads on to the next witness, which was the Australia Institute. Um, And one of the things, so part of that attack on RM's methodology, referenced an article um, that was written on the Australian Deer Association's website uh, a number of years ago when the last economic study was being planned that was encouraging members to participate in the survey on the basis that we would use the results of the survey in the advocacy. I say we because I was working for the Australian Deer Association at the time and I wrote that article. Um, it was raised a couple of times by the Australia Institute. It was raised in their submission. It's really interesting when people reference stuff that they either haven't read or they ignore the stuff that's written in it because if he had have read that article when they referenced it in their submission, they would have noticed that I also wrote that our expectation was that the economics would be far lower in 2019 than they had been in the 2013 report due to the lack of hunting opportunities that were available. Um, So it was very interesting that the Australia Institute went and referenced that article making a claim that it was hunting organisations encouraging their members to inflate their spending when if you'd actually read the article and you were going to conclude that we're encouraging our members to lie in any way, um, which of course we weren't and which of course we don't, you you could only reasonably conclude um, that we were telling our members that we expected it to give lower figures to under-report their, their uh, economic activity, which again, clearly that's not what we're doing. No. Nah. And this is the thing, if there's obviously economics are taken seriously by government, and which is why we as an organisation encourage our membership to be honest in, in their estimates of their expenditure, but to be involved in these projects because we found in the past a lot of people have been, uh, a lot of hunters have been reluctant to get involved because they don't trust the motives uh, behind a lot of those surveys. Um, but we say we need this information out there and we encourage our members to be honest and, and upfront about what they're doing and what they're spending. Um, and for yeah, the Australian Institute to come and suggest that uh, anything else was is highly inappropriate and just wrong. And the Australia Institute's, um, that wonderful word again, they're a progressive think tank. Um, 
and a, a lot of their stuff hinged on a report that was funded by RSPCA Victoria that they'd written over a decade ago. Um, and one of the MPs teased out quite well. Um, it's very interesting. It, if you go on the Parliament website and read the Australian Institute's submission to this inquiry, when it's not attacking the GMA for commissioning the economic report, which is very interesting because the GMA didn't commission the economic report, um, it's attacking the methodology of the economic report, which is fine. That's open for economists to critique the work of other economists and to look at their methodology, and that's absolutely a valid thing to do. But as an MP pointed out to the Australia Institute, their economic assumptions were based on a survey of 15 duck hunters that was conducted on the internet. The term people in glass houses sort of comes to mind. It's it's a bit galling to have people attacking the credibility of others, of, of a credible consultancy that does a lot of government work, uh, when their own economic analysis just lacks any rigour whatsoever. And, and when questioned on that, the response was along the lines of, oh, well, yeah, that doesn't really matter because what we've concluded is logical and it's the logic and the psychology of it that matter, which um, might be great if the Australia Institute had put a psychologist or a philosopher in front of the select committee, but they didn't. They put an, econo- an economist. Um, you'd expect their economics to stack up. And look, that's that's one of the really good things about these uh, these hearings and this inquiry. That it gives people the opportunity to say what they want, um, but they're also held to account for it, and they can actually uh, be questioned on these things and um, and some of the inconsistencies and uh, are, are really brought out by some of the questioning. So. Uh, and that's something that really doesn't normally happen with the antis. They'll throw whatever comments they want out in the media and the media just reports those as fact and people start to accept them as fact. Uh, at least in this process, um, they are being put under scrutiny and what they're saying is actually being checked. And um, I think we'll find as the hearings go on that um, a lot of the misconceptions and a lot of the falsehoods that are put out there will actually be shown to be just that. If you looked at that hearing on Friday from a whose evidence do you prefer standpoint between the two economists that gave evidence. RM Consultancy stuck to what they know. Um, If they didn't know the answer to a question, they said they didn't know. They came across to me as a far more credible source of information, and I don't think anyone objectively looking at this could conclude that you would prefer the Australia Institute's evidence to theirs. And that might be reflected in the fact that government uh, choose who, uh, which companies to to deal with and uh, who they commission to actually do reports uh, that they have some faith in and uh, and who they consider to have a bit of credibility. And also reflected in who the RSPCA commissioned to do reports that they like the outcomes of. Uh, next up was Dr. Brian Hiller, who, um, interesting guy. Yeah, super interesting guy. So... Um, Professor Brian Hill is from the US. Uh, he's a dual citizen, so he's an Australian citizen. Australian citizen. No, he has permanent Australian residency. He has a, um, an Australian wife, so has lived in Adelaide and taught and worked in Australia. So knows the landscape pretty well. He spent a fair bit of time in Victoria. He's done some work with Sale Field and Game uh, with their Nestbox program, just about uh, data collection, uh, what they do and what they could do better down there. So he does understand the land. He is a duck hunter. He was asked whether he was a duck hunter in in quite openly admitted that, yes, he was. So his role in the US is... Enthusiastically, I would describe his admission. <laughs> yeah, there it was, was no... There it was, was no almost hiding. a hell yeah. And look, we find that. I've, I've spent some time in some conferences in the States 
and in Canada as well, uh, North American Duck Symposium. And in a room full of research scientists and um, wildlife managers, educators, and 80 or 90% of them have come from a hunting background. It, it's strange that people that hunt actually understand hunting and want, want to manage the resource. So, look, it's it's not unusual for, for these people in the US to actually be hunters. So his role in the US is to educate wildlife managers. So he runs both undergraduate and postgraduate programs. So, look, he understands this stuff pretty well. Um, it was quite interesting. Some of the members grilled him pretty hard on uh, his association with field and game and whether he was being paid for his trip out here or uh, funded in any way, shape or form? And it was categorically the answer was no. So he was representing himself. He wasn't funded or paid by any hunting lobby group uh, here in Australia. So um, he was here on his own back, which was which was interesting. At the risk of sounding a bit like snowflakes, um, not so much what was asked, but the way it was asked, I thought the questioning of him was quite rude. Um, sure, he was... He was put on the spot, and and we kind of expect that. We've got some some definite anti duck hunting people on that panel. Um, we've got the Animal Justice Party. Animal Justice Party somehow think that that if a witness is a hunter or involved in hunting in some way, shape, or form, that their evidence isn't valid, which I find quite interesting. Seeing how it's a it's a the whole basis of it is around native bird hunting. And I would have thought some people that were hunters giving evidence would be what you actually needed. When you hear the same accusation about the GMA, that it was somehow a terrible thing that a couple of the members of the GMA board held game licences and somehow a terrible thing that a number of the GMA staff... Yeah, well, it's strange that people that interest in wildlife management work in wildlife management. Yeah, yeah. Or would get on a board. They, they have an interest in, in wildlife management because they're hunters through hunting. And it, well, it makes sense that that would be their next step. They'd either go and go and study it or have a, have a definite interest in wildlife management. Where, where is he going to work? I'm sure there's people you know, who work at Vic Roads who've got driver's licenses. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure most people at Vic Roads probably have an interest in driving. Yeah, yeah. no doubt about it. So look, it was it was, re- it was really interesting. Um, I, I love hearing the North Americans' perspective, especially when it comes to um, wildlife and game management. No one does it better than the US. Um, you talk about declining waterfowl populations across the globe, and then you look at the US, and they're the only ones that have increasing water bird um, populations. So the rest of the bird populations in North America are decreasing, yet waterfowl populations are increasing, and that's a direct input from hunting. There's no there's no questioning it. His local knowledge really impressed me to the point where he was naming regional towns in Victoria where people might spend their money where they're not duck hunting. I thought, oh, despite the American accent, and we suffer particularly when we're talking you know, firearms and hunting, that there's there will be people who are not right into firearms and hunting or put a blocker up when they hear an American accent, but the depth of his local knowledge was quite impressive. Oh, there's no doubt he's lived here, but he, he was he was well prepared. He um, he prepared quite well. So he stated um, reference on literature from Europe, North America and Australia um, that, that resulted in hunting being sustainable. So it's been found in numerous reports in numerous continents that, that a regulated um, recreational hunting season um, is sustainable. He did talk about a lot about the facts that ducks die. If we're not shooting these ducks, they don't go and live happily ever after. Um, they all die. Every every one of them ultimately ends up dead. It's just a matter of how that uh, they come to their end. And talked a lot about uh, exhaustion, starvation, water, disease, predation, and hunting. So hunting is one of the causes of mortality, but it's not you know the be all and end all. It's not the only one. 
And there was certainly talk around that mortality and whether that mortality is additive, so whether it adds to the mortality of the population or whether it's, um, I think he said compensatory, which really threw me. So, yeah, whether it whether it substitutes the, the mortality that already happens, um, so whether it compensates that mortality. And the, the understanding is that it, that it actually is the latter. Um, it substitutes other mortality. So the ducks that are being harvested are going to die anyway. For, for the most part. I for the most part. There, there would be additive mortality in there. Um, we, we probably don't know. but There, there, there has to be a degree. Um, we can't go and shoot 380,000 ducks and think that it doesn't add to mortality somehow. And But those ducks are generally being replaced in the system. So that, was, that, that discussion was really interesting. Yeah, particularly when you get into the dynamics of it. So the fact that those ducks aren't there actually creates extra brooding and... Um, we're dealing with incredibly complex systems um, and our understanding of that, regardless of how much research we do, is only ever going to scratch the surface. Yeah, but it really supported what both Professor Kingsford and Professor Clarkson were stating that, you know, if it is additive, it's a tiny, you know, a tiny, tiny proportion of the equation. The, the net impact on duck yeah. populations is negligible. And the other interesting thing uh, was about an extinction, so there's this whole thought that, you know, a couple of Victorians, what do we point something as a percent of the population out duck hunting is going to somehow wipe off at least millions of ducks off the face of the earth. So he was asked a little bit about extinction um, and, and what what waterfowl are in, uh, in danger of extinction. And he kind of paused for a little bit and it's like, from recreational hunting? And it's like, yeah, from recreational hunting in Victoria? Uh, none. <laughs> so, so there's no risk of extinction here. We're not talking about, you know, eliminating species off the planet. And that's something that's thrown around a lot. And I thought um, when he was questioned further, he gave some really good insight to give context to that select committee on where hunting has led to extinctions. So the, the conditions under which the, the perfect storm he described with the passenger pigeon yeah. in the United States. So if you had to write a, a plan to shoot these things into extinction, you'd extend the railheads into their habitat, <laughs> it was quite interesting cut that, down their habitat. Yeah. That, that hunting and, and firearms didn't seem to be the main cause of mortality. It was the train. The train. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it, it was, I thought, really, really interesting and useful when people are talking about hunting being a threat of extinction to put into context the conditions under which that has happened in the past and why that is just so different to the hunting that we practice as well, recreational Well, it was un hunters. unregulated market. Yeah, <laughs> market hunting. The uh, birds are being hunted for markets, and as the markets expanded and populations increased, and the rail the railroads made their way across the US, yeah. the the uh, once the most abundant bird on earth was shot to extinction. Very different to a heavily regulated duck hunting season in Victoria, where you can take ten birds in a good year. So very different scenario. In incomparable. Yeah. yeah. No comparison at all. The final uh, witness was uh, Dr. Holly Sitters. Yeah. Um, now. She appeared as a, an individual. She works for one of the um, universities in Melbourne, but she wasn't representing them. Um, look, she obviously has some really genuine concerns um, about species extinctions and um, and threats to species and species declines. Uh, her, her area of expertise was um, looking at wildfires. So uh, last paper that she published was Animal Population Decline and Recovery After Severe Fire, uh, relating ecological and life history traits with expert estimates of population impacts from the Australian 2019-20 megafires. Now, obviously, those fires had a huge impact on the animal populations um, that were involved in those. Um, really didn't affect uh, the duck hunting areas. 
and didn't affect uh, ducks um, from that. So her area of expertise, I'm not quite sure what it was in relation to, to ducks and given the expertise of some of the other witnesses, um, really not quite sure, apart from her concern about various things, um, really added to the to the day. And, and she was a, um, and that, that was made quite clear to the inquiry, she was a former Animal Justice Party candidate. Um, she believes in a compassionate conservation, I think she, she used, which is not killing things. The other thing that struck me, I'm clearly a credible ecologist, and when she was questioned on things that Professors Clarkson and Kingsford said, um, she confirmed what they'd said. She she concurred with them and backed up their story on them. Um, I think she came to me across as quite credible, although her ideology absolutely shone through. The question really is the committee, it would seem put her there to balance having a pro-hunting and an anti-hunting ecologist. Um, that's what it looks like from the outside. Is that balance to have... <laughs> are we are we going to classify Professor Kingsford and Professor Clarkson as pro-hunting? Um, I wouldn't. I certainly... I certainly and going seems, back, seems to be quite already balanced in that way already. Going back to Professor Kingsford, um, there was a comment he made about what he witnessed with duck hunting in the 1980s compared to what he sees with duck hunting in the 2020s. Um, and again, saying those two things were incomparable and and what was happening in the 1980s was something that he clearly couldn't, was... was couldn't and didn't support? No, yeah. no, it was, was clearly uncomfortable with. Um, mm. And I don't, know, I don't know what his personal ideology is, if I had to guess, if, if you got him in a moment where he wasn't speaking as a professional wildlife scientist, he would probably say his personal opinion is that duck hunting should be banned. Sure. Um, but he certainly didn't say that in the inquiry. He gave an expert, a very, very credible expert opinion. Um, so, no, I don't think Dr Sitters is balanced for there. I suspect that the committee thought that you have Dr Hiller because he's a hunter and then you have Dr Sitters because she's an anti-hunter and therefore they balance each other out. But the thing is Dr Hiller's got deep expertise in waterfowl ecology and Dr Sitters doesn't. And he hasn't stood for parliament for the Animal Justice Party. No, there's that. There's that too. Um, but oh, and she didn't hide for. She was questioned pretty intensely by MPs about her bias, and I think to her credit, she she, she yeah she didn't shirk from that at all. So yeah, I didn't I didn't find her to be not credible. I didn't hear her say anything and and think oh I, I don't believe you. Um, that's for sure. I thought she was being quite honest to the inquiry. Um, I just don't know that what she had to say added any great value. Um, so we move on. We've got, um, we've sort of covered where we're at up to date. We'll probably go into a bit of where to from here. Um, we don't have a crystal ball. I do. No, okay. I'd like to have one. That'd be very handy. But, uh, uh, no, we haven't. I, I can see this conversation degenerating very, 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 very quickly. It's very positive, Barry. <laughs> I'm an optimist. Um, it Look, I, the politics of this are very real and very raw. Um, we have to believe that this inquiry is taking a fair, balanced view of it. I know the chair of the inquiry went of his own accord up to Karanji on the weekend and witnessed um, hunters and anti-hunters 
in action, and and that speaks to if you if you take things on face value, that speaks to somebody who's genuinely curious and genuinely interested in seeing the issues for himself. I think we're 50-50 on whether we have a duck season next year. I really do. Um, the association's doing everything it can, and and other people, field and game, and and unions, and a wide number of supporters are doing everything they can. But I I think we're 50-50. I think it's absolutely still on the line um, and we will be asking hunters to do some more in the coming weeks and months on um, that's not pinned down exactly what that is but it'll be in the line of contacting your MPs I I met with an, an MP the other week who was opposed to duck hunting and who was good enough to tell me quite bluntly and very openly his position and also to um, offer some advice I suppose um, he was in a seat where I where we know there's a large number of duck hunting constituents. And his comment to me was that it's all one-way traffic. And this is something I've heard repeatedly over the last decade, that the amount of contact he'd had from anti-hunting interests was really high and nothing or next to nothing from anyone saying they support duck hunting. And this is this will play into a decision in the Labor Party caucus this perception of report, this this polling we've done, this public opinion stuff we've done is really powerful and I think it gives some really strong indications to people. But that indication of personal contact, of people actually having contacted them and told them, that anecdote really wins the day for a lot of people. And if they're just not feeling it, they're, they're not feeling it. So I think it's really important that when we ask people to get involved, they understand as important as putting your submission into this inquiry, it's on the line and it's going to be on the line, I'd suggest, up until probably February next year, our future's going to be on the line. We're, we've got a long ride ahead of us. Join our mailing list. We've The association started a, a very specific mailing list for duck and quail hunting and part of that was to not bore the vast majority of our members who, whilst they're supportive, um, are not super interested in that. So we've been putting really regular emails out to our duck and quail hunting mailing list. So follow the links and join that. Um, anyone else got final words, Fads? Where do you, where do you see us going? Well, I hope, I hope duck uh, hunting will continue next year now that I'm hooked again. Um, <laughs> so um, so you went out it's, on your... It's your you, fault, Daryl, if it doesn't. You went out um, on your first hunt guided by Daryl. By Daryl, Um and it was fantastic, and and hopefully next year we'll uh, we'll do the same. Yeah, yeah. Look, and that's that's what we're fighting for. And all those people who um, whose camps we went into and just spoke to them about the importance of, of duck hunting to them and their families and their cultural traditions. Um, that's who we're we're really fighting for. Um, we just encourage people. It's been great the number of submissions that have gone in. Uh, the the largest number of submissions that have gone in on any uh, parliamentary inquiry. Um, that's great. So people have heard that call. Uh, we did put out some information about contacting your local MP. That stuff's still up on the on the website. So I'd certainly encourage everybody to um, to follow up and, and do that just to make sure that your voice is heard there. We don't want it to be one-way traffic. Um, I'd agree with Baz. We're, we're sort of 50-50 on this. Um, if I was completely confident that this whole decision would be based on facts and science and sustainability, um, we wouldn't have problems. But it is um, driven by politics and we've seen the decisions made by the Minister in relation to this season um, and the sort of lack of communication coming out there and some things going on. So, yes, we've got to be realistic about this. It is going to be a political decision at the end of the day and we need to do everything we can to try and um, influence that. 
Oh, let's finish on a high note with Mr. Sunshine. Closing remarks. So, yeah, I'm a hunter. I'm optimistic. Um, look, there's no doubting that we're in, we're in a battle. Um, it's not a done deal. I, I, I hear from hunters, that, oh, it's over anyway. You know, what's the point? There's always a point. Uh, it's worth fighting for. It's it's worth but something I've done my whole life. I'm not going to give up. I'm surrounded by a bunch of people here that are, are dedicated people. We work tirelessly on this and we're not going to stop. We're going to keep fighting <laughs> to the very end. If it's one year, if it's 10 years or it's 20 years, who knows? But we're going to be here fighting for the future of duck hunting and for our members. Um, so when we call out and we ask you out, we really need it. <laughs> you know, if we ask for support, we really need that support. And um, there is a future and I look forward to enjoying it for years to come. There you go. Thanks, gents, for the chat today. Um, and hopefully our next podcast is about handguns or a, a new training centre or practical firearm training or any of the number of other things. Um, we had a story on our Facebook page today about a young bloke shooting, 14-year-old shooting a record 500-metre group at Ventrest. Oh, um, <laughs> check it out. It's extraordinary. But So hopefully our next podcast is about one of those topics and the only thing we're talking about ducks is the great and overwhelming victory we've had and how the future's setting up in Victoria. That's my wish for the next SSAA Victoria podcast. I think that's all of our wishes. A three-hour tutorial on the history of the 1911 pistol. We could invite our CEO in for a three-hour tutorial on the history of any number. He's quite knowledgeable on a number of handguns. Um, but stay tuned and look for the title of the episode. It might give you a clue about what we, we're going to talk about. And look, for those people who are listening, uh, more than happy to receive feedback on that. So if there's a particular topic that you would like us to uh, to address, uh, yeah, please reach out and let us know and uh, we'll see what we can do. If you want a three-hour lecture on the history of the 911. We can, we can do it. <laughs> we, can we can arrange it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank Thanks, you. everyone.